Welcome to Christ the King. We're so glad that you're here with us today. And um, uh, this morning we're going to continue with our study in 1 Peter. We're coming to the end. We've only got a few sermons left, and I hope it's been helpful to you. Uh, and now if you can, uh, look in your, your bulletin. There's The passage is printed in there in your bulletin for you. Or if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're going to start reading in verse uh, 12. Through 19. So now, if you can, hear the word of God. Beloved, uh, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. These are Peter's final thoughts on the subject of suffering unjustly. We've talked about this uh, for a few weeks and also earlier on in the series. Uh, Peter addresses the issue of suffering unjustly. And uh, I want to make a distinction, and I hope you pay very close attention. If you don't listen to the rest of the sermon, well, at least this will help you. When you suffer, not if you suffer, but when you suffer, because suffering is universal to all of us. We all suffer in one way or another. And this distinction needs to be made, and so listen carefully. There's two, basically two kinds of suffering in the world. There is suffering in general, which is just the course of events through our normal life. Could be health, could be poverty, could be ignorance, uh, could be uh, being born with uh, bad genetics, could be being born with really good genetics to where you become some sort of a star or a celebrity and uh, that implodes and creates problems in your life. It can be any kind of deprivation from the degree to which God had first intended this world and this creation. Death, of course, uh, being the ultimate. Uh, Could be anger, depression, uh, sorrow, whatever it is. Could be any kind of suffering. A broken marriage, children that go sideways, um, a job that you lose. That kind of suffering is characterized in the book of Job. And all of you, most of you probably familiar with that kind of suffering. Job got hit with every kind of suffering uh, you can imagine. That general suffering is also what you read about a lot of times in the book of Psalms. David is being oppressed for different reasons, and uh, some, some of it's physical maladies, some of it is people don't like him, some of it people want his throne, uh, he has foreign enemies. That's suffering in general. Then there's a second kind of suffering, and this is what the Apostle Peter is talking about specifically in this book. 
and the Apostle Paul and Jesus and many others, when they talk about suffering, they're talking about this particular kind of suffering, and that is suffering uh, according to your Christian faith. In other words, you're being persecuted specifically because you're a Christian. So when we're reading through the passage today, don't confuse that with suffering in general, although I'm going to try to make it relevant because in the West, especially here in America, we're very privileged. If you're a Christian, everybody's a Christian in America. Right? Every, even people that are not Christians are Christians in America. Because we, we, we have this ethos in our country where everybody's nice, everybody's kind of nice. Everybody's sort of good. Everybody's sort of a good person. There's this general atmosphere of kind of Christian. And there's never been, at least in our country, there's never been real outright persecution against Christianity. Now that day, I believe, is coming. But the fact is, up until now, we haven't had it. So, reading through Peter, I've had this struggle myself. and going, well, you know, how do I relate? I'm a privileged pastor living in America. I'm free to do whatever I want. I can go to Starbucks. Nobody's going to kill me after church. Well, not usually. But you know what I'm talking about. There's a, there's a very difficult time for us to get our head around this. And yet... I am going to try to make it relevant because think about this. What if you're in a marriage where the spiritual temperature is not the same? I'm not talking about how much theology you know or how much Bible you know. Maybe you're married to somebody that doesn't know as much theology as you or they don't know as much of the Bible as you. That, that is not what I'm talking about. What if you have a spouse who's just not really on board? You're just missing, your, missing each other. What if your children are just not on board with you with the Christian thing and they're just kind of not really there and you're urging them on. When they're little, you can control them. When they get older, you can't control them. Or what about at work? You know, the, 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 There are things that we suffer even in privileged America because our Christianity forces us to think and live and imagine differently than everybody else around us. If, in fact, you're talking about the biblical faith. You could be talking about what I mentioned a moment ago, just being nice and being a sort of good person and, you know, kind of good and kind of Christian. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about truly being willing to what we spoke about a few weeks ago, to take it even if it disadvantages you to take it and suffer unjustly for the sake of someone else, not grit your teeth and bear it, don't bother, but really be willing to look into the life of someone who is opposing you or doesn't like you, maybe one of your children, maybe your spouse, could be anything, into the life of that person say, you know, I'm going to respond redemptively so that I can save them. I'm not talking about saving them in the ultimate sense where you're saving them from their sins, but I'm talking about what Peter is going to share with us and has shared with us about bringing people to Christ, the redemptive response, through the agency of suffering unjustly. That's different from having cancer or having a bad marriage or whatever. It's, it's different than those kinds of suffering. It's suffering specifically for the sake of the gospel of Jesus because you're a Christian. All right. So to develop this, what I'm calling the theology of suffering today, and we'll talk a little bit more about it next week perhaps, 
is three things. Let me give you the outline very quickly. First of all, Peter tells us, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Expect it. It's going to happen to you. Secondly, understand its purpose. You see, one of the difficulties we have with suffering is we don't know why. This is one of the times when you can know why. I don't know why I've had two cancers. I don't understand it. I mean, look at me. I should, I should be perfectly healthy, right? I don't know why things happen to us. I don't know why. You know, God may have, have allowed something in your life that you really don't think is fair. I don't know. I don't understand it. But this is one thing we can understand about suffering. You can get your head around this because He tells us we can understand it. So we can understand the purpose to this kind of suffering. Whereas other kinds, we can't necessarily understand the purpose. It's very hard. Thirdly, entrust your soul to your Creator. So, no surprise, understand the purpose and entrust your soul. Let's look at it very quickly. First of all, don't be surprised. It's to be expected. This is in verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial as if it's something strange. Now, you have, to, you have to believe that Peter has in his mind, when he mentions fiery trial, he's thinking about the three Hebrew children in the furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, who, who because of their faith, because they would not uh, do what everybody else was doing in the kingdom and stayed true to their faith, these three Hebrew children were taken and thrown into a fiery furnace to be murdered, to be killed. And the people that threw them into the furnace themselves were killed. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was a safe distance back, the king of Babylon. And he has his people throw uh, these, these three Hebrew children in there, but they're not burned. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is able to see, I don't know how, he sees inside the furnace and he says, I see them, they're still alive. Then he sees a fourth person, whom of course we believe typifies our Lord Jesus with us in the fiery furnace. And of course they come out unscathed, but the fourth man stays in the furnace. The fourth one stays. You see, the faithful have always been on Satan's radar, forever. It's never going to change. I mean, Hebrews 11, you all know that chapter, very famous. Oh, never mind. I have a timer set in there that told me church is over, so see you later. No, I'm kidding. I do, I actually have time. I have, I have, uh, I have timers set. My, I had a timer go off the other night uh, at 8.30, and Marty V said, what is that? I said, well, the, the, my phone's telling me it's time to go to bed. And she says, really? I said, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. So I apologize for that. I turned the sound off. It won't happen again. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> the fiery furnace. We're always going to be on Satan's radar. We're always going to be on people who don't believe's radar. We're always going to be hit because we're Christians. There are going to be certain things that you're going to suffer because of your faith. You know, like the like the re, just let's take a simple thing: resisting gossip. Somebody comes and tells you some juicy morsel, and you just think, "Oh man, I love this." Don't we all love gossip? I mean, I do. I'm the only one. Okay, we'll move on. Uh, no, I mean gossip. You know, you hear some gossip. Oh boy, that's really good. Well, who can I share that with? And maybe you don't. Maybe you just ground it. You say, no, nah, I'm not going to do that because, you know, I'll feel guilty. Chuck's made me guilty. Hey, that's suffering. 
Or maybe in your marriage, like I was talking about, you're married to someone with a different spiritual temperature. You know, you may have to put up with certain things. You may have to go the extra mile. Those are to be expected. Don't be surprised. And so the faithful have always been on Satan's radar. And all of the apostles talked about it. The Old Testament talks about it. Jesus talked about it. Let me give you a few. Paul said this, uh, 2 Timothy, listen. All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will be. Not might be, maybe be. You will be persecuted. The Apostle James, all of you know, he starts his letter. I mean, what a downer. He starts his letter. Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into fiery trials. Knowing that these various trials build patience. Well, thank you, James. Or John, in 1 John, Chapter 3, he says, don't be surprised that the world hates you. And Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Don't be surprised. If the world hates you, know this. Before it ever hated you, it hated me. I've said these things. Listen to what he says. I've said these things that you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. What? I've overcome the world. Surprise and shock, unexpected disappointments, if you're not ready for it, if you think you're entitled to this perfectly non-suffering life, if you think that, 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 if, that if you obey God, everything should come your way, and that you should be blessed, if you obey God, blessings will automatically follow. Listen, that is the majority report in the United States of America. That is the Gospel According to America. Do you know that? Can somebody agree or not agree? If you want to come argue with me after service, at our q and I'll let you. That is the gospel according to America. If you do what's right, and you walk according to being a good person, and if you're a Christian in America, if you follow God's law, and you follow His law, and you believe, and you have faith, you will be blessed. And if you don't get blessings, then what's wrong? Something's wrong with you. You need more Bible. You need more faith. You need more of something. And you need to give more money to our church. Now, I'm on board for that one. (laughs) Do you understand what is being said out there in the majority of churches today? I don't care what background denomination. Whenever calamity comes in our lives, what is the first thing we think? What did I do? What did I do? What is wrong? Peter says suffering's right. In fact, God help you if you're not suffering for your faith. What is wrong with us if we lost sight of the truth that if you want to be one of Jesus' people, you better be like Jesus. And that means unjustly suffering. And being Not just gritting your teeth and taking it, but really going into it to redeem, to restore, to rebuild. Because that's Peter, according to Peter, that's what we've been called to do. In the world you're going to have tribulation, Jesus said. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Suffering is to be expected. Now go out there and get into it. He's not telling us where to like it. Who's going to like it? Something's wrong with it. If you like it, you need to come see me. We need to get you some medication. 
It's not that we like it, but when it comes, we don't see it as some failure on our part. We see it as the norm, not the unexpected. And I don't want any of you to get caught by surprise. So many Christians, especially in this particular culture, have been shipwrecked on the rocks of that belief that, well, my life ought to just be perfect because I'm obeying God and I'm a pretty good person and I'm a kind of a Christian. And so consequently, I should have things should be going my way. It's a lie. It's straight from the pit of hell. And as Steve Brown used to say, it smells like smoke. Don't believe it. Suffering is to be expected, not necessarily enjoyed, but don't get derailed when it happens. Expect it and understand its purpose. Look, this is where you can start to drill down and put your feet on a solid foundation. Understand the purpose. This is verses 13 through 16. This is really amazing, and I hope you'll pay close attention. It's understanding the link. There is a link that Peter builds here. In fact, he does it grammatically. In Greek, you can see it, and it's shocking. I'm going to share it with you in English, but it's just, it just, you go, wow, he spent some time. He actually thought about this. They crafted it so that when they opened the page to 1 Peter chapter 4, or the scroll, it would have been a scroll at that time, when they rolled open that scroll, the, whole, the, the, the thing would have just stood out. You would have said, I get it. I see exactly what he's saying. Even if you were unlearned and you had heard uh, someone talk about it, they would have explained it this way, the way I'm going to explain it to you. And it will help you. How do you make the link between these three things? Suffering, glory, and redemption. Peter links them grammatically. He links them in the way he structures the sentences. It's there for you to see. I'm going to point it out as best I can. And Dr. Edmund Clowney says this in his little commentary. He says this, God's will for our suffering must be understood in the light, listen now, in the light of God's will for Christ's suffering. See, God's will for our suffering has to be linked somehow to Christ's suffering. God's will for Christ's suffering. That's the only thing, folks, the only thing. You're not going to have the willpower. You're not going to have the strength to just gut it out and bear it. It's going to be crushing at times. And so He's giving us the tools that we're going to need so that in our weakness, when we are struggling, when we're finding it impossible to suffer for someone that, that, that we know doesn't deserve our kindness in return, when we're doing it, you're going to have to have your life grounded in something that will sustain you. And if it's just your willpower, it'll fail. So He's giving us this link between suffering, glory, and redemption. And He's already talked about it once. Back in 3.18, we talked about that quite a long time, a few weeks ago. Christ suffered once for sin. Chapter 3, verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is right in the center of His book. And what He's saying is, Christ's death was unique. It was an atoning death. It was a redeeming death. 
In other words, Jesus' death paid for what I, I told you are the three P's. He paid for the penalty of death. He, he died to free us from the power of sin and eventually someday from the presence of sin altogether. But in the meantime, we're going to live in the presence of sin. The penalty has been paid for and the power of sin has been broken in your life. I know we struggle, but we can talk about that in the Q&A if you want to. And the presence of sin, someday we're promised that it will be done away with. For now, we live in the presence of sin. So he's already told us this. But now he's telling us that mysteriously, I can't explain it, neither. Peter doesn't try to explain it, nobody really tries to explain it, because you're just to accept it and to link, to make the linkage. That mysteriously, listen, somehow we participate in redemption, not that we're contributing to the atonement or doing under anything like that, but that somehow underneath that broad umbrella of Christ's redemption for us, that we become the means of grace in someone else's life. Everyone in this room, all of you got here by means of someone else. Either you were born into a Christian family and the parents carried you to church all your life, or maybe someone shared the gospel with you, or you turned on the TV and you heard somebody uh, on television talk about it, or somebody uh, at your work uh, shared the gospel with you. Somewhere, someone brought you to Jesus. No one in this room saw a burning bush. That should have evoked a chuckle at least. Did you all see burning bushes? No, nobody saw burning bushes, nor, nor will you. Nobody got saved with a burning bush. Somehow there were means. And he's saying mysteriously, we are the means. Peter said this earlier, remember chapter 2? Keep your conduct, listen, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. 2.12 So that when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Now where did Peter get that from? Listen to this. Almost the exact words, by the way. He's quoting somebody. I hope you know who it is. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, Jesus actually... Uh, uh, John, uh, Peter, one of them, Peter actually paid attention when Jesus gave a sermon. Now, he was a fisherman. He probably was illiterate. He didn't, probably couldn't write. But he remembered. You know, the greatest destroyer of our memories, you know what it is, don't you? The invention of the pencil. Nobody laughs in this church. It's Presbyterians. Okay, that's actually kind of funny. The, the, the pencil, uh, when people didn't know how to write, they had to remember. So people's memories were more robust. Uh, this is a scientific fact. What is the link between suffering and glory? Let's look at it real quickly and then we'll finish up. The link between suffering and glory is in verses 13, 14, and 16. And the way it's laid out, it's very, very beautiful, very crisp. Verse 13a 14a, 16a, this is the beginning of each one. I just want you to concentrate on that part only. Look at it. 13a, you share in the sufferings. 14a, you're insulted for the name of Christ. 16a, you suffer as a Christian. 
Then he links them with three linking words. 13b, when his glory is revealed, in the middle he says rejoice. In other words, the way to, re- the way to link suffering, look at it carefully, suffering in 13a and glory in 13b is the word rejoice. Joy is the way that you link suffering and glory. So what am I suffering for? What's the purpose? What's going on? Why is it happening? Why do people hate me? Why can't I get that raise? Why can't I get this job? I know my boss knows I'm a Christian and so he hates me. And on and on it goes. Why? Here's the reason. He's saying, look, there's suffering associated with it. Rejoice. This is where you put down your anchor in God's joy in the joy that you have been redeemed, in the joy of your salvation, what Peter called the living hope in chapter 1. Look at 14a and 14b. You're insulted for the name of Christ, but you're blessed because the Spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. You see, even though the world may persecute you, even though the world may uh, turn against you in some way, you may have some hard times because of your faith, even in the midst of that, he's saying that your suffering is coupled with glory because you're blessed. What does blessed mean? Blessed means that even in that suffering, listen, God is present with you. To be blessed in the Old Testament world and in the ancient world was to have the favor of God or the gods or whatever was up there. For us, we believe it is God's presence in our life. And He's told us, you will never go through suffering alone. I will be with you. I'll be in it with you. I've already been in the furnace. In fact, I stayed in the furnace when you got out. See the Gospel there. Very important. And look at 16a. If you suffer as a Christian, he says, don't be ashamed. How often does our suffering and things are not going right? Maybe, maybe you get fired from a job because you're a Christian. I don't know. That didn't happen in the United States too much. But if, if you did, if you lost your job, or if your marriage is going sideways, or your kids aren't doing right, they're not, going, they're not along with you, or you've got a parent that's off the rails, who knows what the situation may be. Even in America, those things happen. And you're suffering. It can bring a lot of shame. It can bring a lot of heartache into your life. What if you make a mistake and you actually sin and somebody finds out about it? There's a lot of shame associated. And he's saying, don't be ashamed. I've taken your shame. The glory of God is linked to suffering by the absence of shame. And where does shame go? It goes to the cross. The prophet Isaiah said, instead of shame, I will give you a double portion. This is probably in Peter's mind. Instead of dishonor, everlasting joy. Do you see it? Even the prophet Isaiah linked suffering, which Israel was suffering at that time that he was writing, with everlasting joy, a future hope. And the Apostle Paul said, the riches of the glory of the gospel ministry is this. You want to know what the richness of the gospel is? Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, we lost 
glory in the garden. This is the thing that we're all seeking. We're all trying to find something. Every human being, everyone in this room, all of us, we are trying to find something to give ultimate meaning to our lives. We get it from our marriage or our kids or our job or our money or our looks or whatever it is. What Our health. And the minute that something like that is taken away, we collapse. Very often, we fail and collapse. We, want, we start going, why, why, why? And there aren't a lot of good reasons why. But here he tells us, understand this, there's a link between your suffering and the glory of God and the redemption that has been brought into your life. He actually describes two sides of judgment. This is, this is amazing. Listen to this. What does he mean in 17a, judgment begins with the household of God. Listen, I have to confess, I always thought that what that meant was that God was going to be, first off, He was going to judge all the Christians and you know make sure we're all squared away before He moves on to the sinners. So we better have our house in order. And that's not what this sentence means. Listen carefully. This is Karen Jobes in her excellent commentary by, by Dr. Jobes, uh, Karen Jobes. Listen to what she says. Judgment begins at the household of God is not punishment for our misdeeds, but the exact opposite. It is the breaking in. You remember we talked about that. Breaking in of God's eschatological judgment. Now I know that's a big word and it's kind of hard to get your, your head around, but here's what it means. Eschatological judgment means is that the judgment that's coming at the end of the world, clear out here at the end, someday there's going to be an eschatological judgment. The great white throne where we're all human beings, Christian, non-Christian, everybody's going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That is the great eschatological judgment. What Dr. Jobs is saying is that that future judgment day is being brought back to your now, to your present here. When it says judgment begins at the household of God. And it reveals, listen to this, this is mind-blowing, it is absolutely beautiful. Revealing His glory and vindication of those who belong to Him. While it appears to the world that judgment is passing over them, in other words, they're getting away with everything, they're getting away with all their sin, and falling on Christians instead, it's the opposite. It's the Christians who through their suffering are bringing glory to God. What, what Dr. Jobs is saying is simply this, that that future judgment is being brought back to our now. And even though that we're suffering now, and it appears to everybody that maybe God's judgments on those Christians, I mean, after all, the, uh, this guy that works for Ravi Zachariah, Nabil Qureshi, do any of you know who Nabil Qureshi is? Okay, you know he's got stage four stomach cancer, he's going to die any day, right? And the Islamic community is going crazy with blogs and tweets and everything. Allah is judging him. Allah is bringing judgment on him. That's not what Peter's talking about. What Peter's talking about is that your future suffering, your future great throne, your future judgment was brought back in time to a certain point in a certain place. And that point in place was in Jerusalem. In fact, it was outside of Jerusalem 
on a garbage heap on a cross. That future judgment was brought back here. Judgment begins at the household of God. We, in our suffering now, we are showing that the vindication then is coming back to us now. Are you willing to suffer with Christ? Are you willing to suffer with Jesus? Judgment and vindication. It appears one way, but it's actually the other. So let's finish. How do you demonstrate? How does this kind of suffering really demonstrate uh, the righteousness of God? Well, he says it in this final verse, 19. Entrust your soul to the faithful creators. Let those who suffer according to God's will. He's saying it's not outside of God's will. It's God's will that you suffer in this way. Let those who suffer entrust their soul to the faithful Creator. The real test in suffering, folks, is to what do you turn? Do you turn to your goodness? You've done all the right things. You've given money to the church. You go to church. You behave well. You try to make your moral uh, life conform to some uh, ethic. and, And you're going to turn and trust that? Are you going to roll out your record or your accomplishments or your goodness in any sense? And even the tiny, well, you know, I, I'm always one that forgives. I always do the right thing. I, do you always? Can you honestly say that? Can anyone? Do we really want to, I'm begging you, ask yourself the question, do you really want to roll that out when you're having a bad, when you're suffering something horrific and it's cutting the legs out from under you? Do you want to really turn back and look at yourself in the mirror? Or will you cast your eyes somewhere else? That's what Peter's saying. He's saying entrust your soul at those times when you're suffering, when things are not going the way that you expected them to, when life gets really bad, when, when life collides, as, as uh, Carolyn James says in her wonderful book, when life collides with your faith and, goes and knocks your faith sideways, where will you look Where will you cast your gaze? Where will you turn your eyes? And Peter's saying, for goodness sakes, entrust your soul to the faithful Creator. Don't entrust your soul to yourself or any of your good works. Turn to Him. Run to Jesus. Run to Him. Then sort it out afterwards. But run to Him then. Otherwise you fail. How do you do this? In a recent article I read, it's part of a book, uh, uh, Broken Hearts by Amy Voskamp. Uh, She put this up on her blog. And if you haven't read anything by Amy Voskamp, you should, uh, because you don't want to die before you've read something by this amazing author. She's incredible. Listen to what she says. The mind is renewed in Christ when the mind returns to the cross of Christ. Did you hear that? The mind is renewed in Christ when the mind returns to the cross of Christ, the words of Christ, the ways of Christ, the wooing of Christ. The way to take captive every thought is to make every thought cruciform, or the shape of the cross, cruciform. The cruciform is the form of the gospel. What frees you, listen to this, what frees you, To fully live. What frees you to fully live is to let yourself be fully crucified with Christ. 
That's not a popular message. Not in our country. Do you want to be changed? You've got to climb up on that cross and embrace the one who went there for you. You've got to identify with him even in his sufferings, in his blessedness for sure, but even in his sufferings. You've got to embrace the one who was pierced through. And if you do, you also will be pierced through to some extent. And where his piercing was redemptive, your piercing will bring you to glory. The thing that we're lacking, that true meaning, that seminal thing that we want down in our guts that will satisfy us where everything else leaves us at some point bereft. This will never leave. This is what Jesus meant. I'll never leave you forsake you. Make your life cruciform, the shape of the cross. What frees you to fully live is to let yourself be fully crucified with Christ. Now that's the gospel. I hope you'll believe it. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your kindness and your mercy. I'm painfully aware that this is not a popular message, Lord. And I fear sometimes we leave church here at Christ the King and, and it can be a downer. But Father, I'm compelled to speak the truth. And I know that everyone in this room has suffered at the hands of some horrific thing that has knocked them sideways. And we don't know why. We struggle to understand the purpose for this suffering. We don't know what's going on in our lives. And you have been so kind and so gracious to link our suffering to your glory and encourage us to rejoice. Not the fake rejoicing that we see so often but true, deep joy that cannot be bent or moved. That we are to receive your blessedness, that is your presence in the suffering. And that finally, in some amazing way, to participate with you in that suffering, that we might bring others to Jesus. Help us, Father, not to be ashamed, but to embrace the one who died for us the one who was ridiculed for us, who bore our shame. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.